Today's show is brought to you by Leatherman Data Services. How would things have gone for LaSalle if he'd had a good map maker to find the Mississippi? What if the Santa Fe Expedition had been able to commission a detailed survey plot of all the wells and springs from Texas to New Mexico? If Leatherman Data Services had been around back then, Texas history may have turned out differently. Leatherman Data Services are experienced cartographers who share your passion for the past. They provide high-quality mapping and geographic data services for historians, archaeologists, and cultural resource management firms, people who plumb the depths of history and need their maps to be accurate. If you think you need their services, you can contact Leatherman Data Services by sending an email to leathermandataservices at gmail.com or find out more at their website, leathermandataservices.com. We thank Leatherman Data Services for sponsoring this episode and many others on the History Podcasters Network. You can find more shows like this one at historypodcasters.com. Without freedom, why you're dead as a beaver hat. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. And I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Remember the Alamo is a battle cry felt in the hearts of every Texan, and more importantly, feared by every enemy of Texas. It's an iconic event, worthy of a movie. As such, it became a passion project that took John Wayne almost two decades to bring to the silver screen. Today we're discussing John Wayne's The Alamo. But first, what do you think is the most memorable historical disaster in Texas? Well, I'm probably biased, considering I grew up there, but I'm going to have to go with the, uh, the Texas City explosion. Which Texas City explosion? Well, the one that I grew up hearing about, so the first one. I'm going to say the fertilizer plant explosion in West Texas recently, because my son's soccer coach is originally from West, so we got lots of first-hand information about just how bad it was. Yeah, and Texas seems to have a problem with exploding fertilizer. Yes, the poo-poo plant went boom-boom. Well, I'm going to go with another explosion, and this was 1937, the New London School Explosion. It's just in East Texas, and a school blew up because the natural gas leak was not detected. Uh, killed several hundred children in the middle of the day. Pretty much all the kids in the town. Wow. Well, this ship's off to a super downer. Right. Well, thanks, Debbie Downer. Yeah, yeah. thanks. No problem. <laughs> the Alamo was a passion project for John Wayne. And John Wayne, for those who don't know, was and is one of the most iconic Western stars of the screen for his day. John Wayne said, I first thought of doing it in 1946 and went down there to research. I was at Republic at the time, and when I left there, they tried to steal the idea. They came up with the last command, which was a quickie. Nuff said. Now, in 1948, Wayne's friend, famed director John Ford, came to San Antonio and made an announcement that he would be involved in the project. Wayne would play Davy Crockett and would direct the film, and his son Pat Ford was already working on the script. At this point, the intention was to film in San Antonio. Wayne famously said, Jack Ford has offered to help me with it and direct the scenes in which I appear. What more could a man ask? Wayne's friend, James Edward Grant, was brought in to rewrite the script. When the script was finished in 1950, they made plans to start filming the next year after Wayne and Ford finished shooting The Quiet Man. Wayne had been scouting potential shooting locations for years. In 1951, he decided to film in Mexico instead of Texas, and he submitted the script to the Mexican government. Financial problems were already starting to delay the production, and filming in Mexico would be cheaper. For obvious reasons, this decision created a lot of controversy in Texas. 
R.J. O'Donnell, the vice president and general manager of the Interstate Circuit, one of the largest movie chains in Texas, and Jesse Jones, a Texas politician and publisher of the Houston Chronicle, as well as many others, went so far as to contact Herbert Yates, president of Republic Pictures, to try and dissuade them from doing so. O'Donnell said, To make the story of the Alamo in Mexico would be disastrous, in my opinion. It would be like making the story of Bunker Hill or the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia or any other of our patriotic stories in a foreign country. The Daughters of the Republic of Texas even got involved, pledging to boycott the movie, and O'Donnell said that if it was filmed in Mexico, it would never be shown in a theater in Texas. By October of that year, the outrage was so great that Wayne had a change of heart and agreed to film the movie in Texas. John Wayne and Herbert Yates fell out and came into conflict because of uh, John Wayne's incredibly high budget at the time of $3 million. $3 million, that's a high budget. John Ford dropped out of the picture as this conflict heated up, and finally, uh, Wayne ended up leaving Republic and took his script with him. Now, The Last Command was made by Republic Pictures in 1955, when Davy Crockett mania was going wild thanks to Disney's Fess Parker TV series. The movie starred Sterling Hayden, and it cost more than $3 million. And it wasn't really good at all. As good as the TV show was, Disney's depiction of the Alamo was also pretty bad. Wayne and his producing partner, Robert Fellows, took over the development of the Alamo movie, and they tried to secure funding for the film. With John Wayne directing, producing, and now uh, appearing just as the smaller role of Sam Houston. Now, unfortunately, nobody was willing to bank on the film unless the Duke was the star, so he agreed to play one of the main characters. United Artists signed on to distribute the movie and to help out with some of the financing, while Wayne and Fellows put in $2.5 million of their own money. The remainder of the film's budget was financed by wealthy Texas businessmen, and the town of Brackettville was selected as the filming location, where an elaborate set would be built replicating exactly the 1836 mission. Brackettville is near Uvalde, south e- uh, southwest of San Antonio, yeah, out in the middle of nowhere. The idea for the complex was developed by James Tullis Happy Shahan after he was elected mayor of Brackettville in 1950. The town's economy had been ailing since the Army deactivated Fort Clark in 1946. Shahan persuaded Paramount Studios to film Arrowhead at Brackettville in 1951. Two other movies were made before John Wayne filmed the Alamo on Shahan's ranch near Brackettville. From December 1957 to September of 1959, when the Alamo was filmed, the Batjack Company, Wayne's production company, supervised a $12 million building program that involved up to 400 workmen at a time to build, quote, the most authentic set in the history of movies. More than a million adobe bricks were used to construct 200,000 square feet of permanent buildings. The Alamo replica was based on careful research that included obtaining plans sent to Spain by the Catholic priests who built the mission. There were no false front streets. Electrical and telephone wiring was concealed in more than 10 miles of underground casing. Now, picture in your mind, 8 a.m. September 9, 1959. It was a typical Texas summer morning, which means it was hot. The cast and crew of the Alamo, 321 strong, solemnly gathered around Father Peter Rogers of San Antonio's St. Mary's Catholic Church to receive his blessings on the film set. And this, is, this was his prayer. O Almighty God, centuries ago, Thou raised a magnificent mission, a harbor for all of peace and freedom. This was the Alamo. Today we ask Thy blessing, Thy help and Thy protection, as once again history is relived in this production. During these weeks and months that follow, keep safe, we beseech thee, all engaged in the film. Bless it with good weather and superlative effort on the part of all. 
We ask these things so the film The Alamo will not only be the world's outstanding production, but will also be a tribute to the spirit of the men who built it, who lived in it, who died in it. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns world without end. Amen. I have goosebumps. So filming started, and this film features an amazing cast of characters uh, that really is emblematic of the the epic nature of this film. Um, It features not only John Wayne as Davy Crockett, but it also had Academy Award nominee Richard Widmark as Jim Bowie, and Lawrence Harvey, who was the Lithuanian-born Jewish Shakespearean actor who was fresh off the London stage as the aristocratic Travis. For the minor characters, veteran character actors Richard Boone, Denver Pyle, who played Uncle Jesse and the Dukes of Hazzard, uh, Chill Wills, who was a veteran uh, Western movie actor, Ken Curtis, who most people probably remember him as Festus on Gunsmoke, and Hank Warden, who was in The Searchers and a bunch of other John Ford movies. Uh, To name a few, those round out the cast. The rest of the cast was made up of a mix of John Ford regulars, famous actors of the day, buddies of John Wayne's, and a few of his kids, including Patrick Wayne, his son, who played Bonham in the movie. Typical for the day, a popular young singing star was cast as a member of Crockett's uh, group of Tennesseans. This was Frankie Avalon, who a lot of people remember from the the beach movies with Annette Fiducello. Yeah, he was tremendously convincing as a country Tennessee boy. Only Justin Bieber could do better in modern times. Well, and that's that's actually an appropriate comparison because he was that big in 1960. Like he was huge as a star. So it's interesting to see that with this fascinating cast, this amazing set, and everything going on, the leads don't really get along. In an interview with Widmark much later, he said that he had personality conflicts with Wayne. Quote, well, we never got along personally. I respected him for what he did, his work, and to this day I love to see him in a Western. He's terrific. But as people, we didn't get along. We just didn't like each other. About Wayne's vision for the Alamo, he said, quote, well, I thought it was ridiculous, you know. Grade school hogwash, and all wrong. <laughs> Finally, he said about his casting as Bowie, Well, I didn't want to do it, particularly, but I needed the job at the time. I really didn't want to work with Duke because we didn't like each other. But I went over one day to see him before when they were talking about casting me. He was very nice, and he wanted me to play Travis, the part that Larry Harvey played. And I said, No, I don't want to play that. I want to play Bowie. He said, You're not big enough for Bowie. He liked big guys. Big to him was great, and I said, I'll be big enough. According to the lore of the film, a few days into shooting, Widmark wanted to quit, but he was convinced, or possibly his lawyer convinced him, to stay. He did have a friend, screenwriter Burt Kennedy, rewrite all his dialogue, and it shows. Bowie is a much grittier character than the other characters as they're portrayed. Harvey was cast as Travis because Wayne liked British stage actors to play aristocratic Southerners. Makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Harvey endeared himself to Wayne and the crew for two things. First, he would entertain Wayne and his buddies by performing Shakespeare in an outrageous and perfect Texas accent. Another story that Wayne loved to tell about Harvey was that Harvey forgot that a uh, firing cannon has a recoil, and during the scene where he fires in response to a surrender demand, the cannon came down on his foot and broke it. Harvey didn't scream in pain until after Wayne had called cut. To Wayne, that was the ultimate in professionalism. <laughs> and I have to say, I need to point out that when you do a perfect Texas accent, it is outrageous. So those aren't the only amazing things that happen in this production. One of the things that's, that's notable and a lot of people talk about is that John Ford came to the set at one point to visit his buddies. And of course, John Ford being John Ford, he couldn't resist trying to take charge. 
so Duke sent him out uh, with a crew to shoot second unit footage just to get him out of his hair. And very little of this uh, footage was used. Now, of course, over time, the legend of John Ford was enhanced to make it seem like Ford had secretly come in and saved the day from the incompetent Wayne and his problems in production. Uh, but most of the people on the film agree that Wayne really did a pretty good job as a director. He wasn't inspired or brilliant, but he was very competent. Now, another big problem on the set was crickets, which had a habit of ruining shots and scenes by jumping on and landing on the actors in the middle of the scene. And then there was another problem, and that's, of course, the scourge of South Texas, uh, you know, the bane of Panna Maria, the rattlesnake, which seemed to be everywhere, and it terrified the out-of-towners, especially Frankie Avalon, apparently. Now, frequent Ford and Wayne player Jack Pinnock, who was an old China Marine, he had the task of drilling the hundreds of extras hired for the battle scenes, which were enormous and elaborate, even for that time in epic movies. A total of 560,000 feet of film was produced for 566 scenes, but in spite of the massive size of the production, it only lasted three weeks longer than scheduled, from September to December of 1959. After several months of post-production, the final cut was ready for release in October 1960. The original theatrical release, featuring a magnificent score, included an overture and intermission written by legendary composer Dmitry Tiomkin, came in at 3 hours and 13 minutes long and premiered at the Woodlawn Theater in San Antonio. The film was a smash hit, earning $7 million at the box office during its theatrical run, but it still lost money due to its huge $13 million budget. Wayne had sold all his rights to United Artists for much less than his personal investment, but UA did eventually recoup its money. At the 33rd Academy Awards in 1961, John Wayne's The Alamo was nominated for seven Academy Awards despite mixed critical reception. The film would only win for Best Sound Recording, but it would be a nominee for Best Picture, shutting out other popular films like Hitchcock's Psycho and Kubrick's Spartacus. There was a brief flutter of controversy as Chill Wills, nominated for Best Supporting Actor, ran an inappropriate ad in Variety, claiming he was praying harder than the Alamo defenders, as his was even a longer shot. Further, he called on all voters as his, quote-unquote, Alamo cousins. Groucho Marx took out a response in Variety, stating he was glad to be his cousin, but was voting for Salmonio. The film did win an Oscar for Best Sound, while Tiomkin won a Golden Globe for his amazing score. Avalon had a minor hit for his song, The Ballad of the Alamo, and another song from the movie, the Green Leaves of Summer also became a somewhat uh, well-known song. When we're talking about the movie, though, you can't help but bring up the comparisons to the historical events that actually happened. And again, it's important to note that when we talk about these things, we need to be using 1960s standards and not necessarily what we've learned since then. Now, that said, historians J. Frank Doby and Lon Trinkle had been hired as historical advisors on the film, but they quit upon reading the script. And they demanded that their names be removed from any association with the film. So historical accuracy even then was a pretty major issue with the film. And while they got stuff right, they got a lot wrong as well. It's pretty easy to get on Wikipedia and find a list of complaints about what John Wayne got wrong in the Alamo. But let's take a moment to run through some of the historical facts that John Wayne got right. Tejanos died defending the Alamo. Don Seguin was much more respected and well-treated by Travis in history and Juan was one of his most trusted officers. There was a major Bejarino evacuation before the Mexican army arrived on the first day, and Santa Ana did give safe passage to the Anglo non-combatants. Bowie did have a Mexican wife who was the daughter of the governor, and was deeply affected by her death from, quote, that damn plague, although his family actually died three years before the revolution. 
And Crockett indeed had also been, quote-unquote, through it himself. And there's a scene in the movie we're talking about, as his first wife had died several years before. There was an Anglo merchant who was more concerned for his inventory than defending freedom. He probably had nothing to do with Crockett, though, and Crockett never romanced a senorita. He had a wife and children back in Tennessee and planned to send for them when things settled down in Texas. Crockett also did not have 20 different hats, but maybe he did. He was apprenticed as a hat maker as a boy, but he sure does change clothes a lot in this movie. Yeah, he had a lot of clothes. Yeah. A lot of costume changes. Yeah. Crockett's arrival did spawn a Fandango or two, but he only had five men with him, not 30. Also, Travis did command 30 regulars, and Bowie commanded the volunteers. Neither man liked each other much at all, but unlike in the movie, the one thing they agreed on was that they should defend the Alamo. Santa Ana's battery before the battle was to the northeast of the fort and aimed at the north wall. The San Antonio River was actually located approximately where the Mexican soldiers were treating the wounded. There was high ground north and east of the Alamo, and open country to the south and west. The Texians had indeed taken the town from general cause and had fought a battle in San Antonio. Also, Santa Ana's administrators did rule Potosi. Fandango was held in San Antonio the night before the Mexican army arrived. The defenders were outnumbered, but Santa Ana didn't have 8,000 men. He had more like 1,500 to 2,000. Right, and Fannin did have a larger force in Goliad, and they did try to reach San Antonio. He didn't have 1,000 men, though, and he wasn't ambushed on his way there. He had maybe 400 men, and they got about five miles before they turned back. Why did they turn back? Uh, We'll find that out later. Santa Ana demands the Alamo's unconditional surrender. Travis answers with a cannon shot. The Alamo defenders did make sorties from the fort to harass the enemy, and together wood, water, and food. The men from Gonzales enter the fort at night. A Tejano defender other than Juan Seguin, Loyosa, is mentioned. Bonham did return to say that there was no help coming. Travis gives a speech to his men, and while the line in the sand may be apocryphal, it was part of the legend well before this movie. Crockett and the best marksmen were placed to defend the palisade. The Mexican army's first breach, which was their entry into the fortress, is at the north wall, and this is where Travis was killed. But all evidence indicates that he was killed almost at that moment of the breach. Bowie is killed fighting from his cot. Mrs. Dickinson and Angelina emerge from the Alamo Chapel, which Davy Crockett most definitely did not try to blow up in real life. Wow. Well, that is a that is a nice list of things that John Wayne got right in this movie. Or close to right. Before we taped this episode, we all took some time to actually watch the movie. Sean and I had both seen this in our youth, and it's been many years since I'd watched it. Yeah, and this was the first time that I've ever watched it. So That's awesome. So I think this would be a great <laughs> time for us to kind of go around and just sort of say a little bit about how we felt about watching this this classic version of the Alamo. Yeah, and I I loved the movie as a kid. I mean, but I love John Wayne movies. And I think that's part of, you know, that's part of the appreciation of the movie is that it is John Wayne, and it's really John Wayne being John Wayne. He doesn't play David Crockett. He plays John Wayne, um, which is what he does for most of his movies. Um, I always liked, what I love about the movie is that the mission is perfect. Um, And you can actually go to Brackettville today, to Alamo Village, it's shown up in tons of movies since then uh, as a backdrop for Western movies and other movies about the Alamo. So I think the movie gets certain things definitely right. Unfortunately, especially in this viewing, there are scenes that are just don't fit or that are so long and boring. The plot with this, with the senorita, what's her name? Carmelita? I don't even remember. Yeah. That, that just, uh, I was done with that. Well, the interesting thing, to me that you mentioned is that the movie 
in the current DVD version that's floating around. There was an even shorter cut that was on VHS. Now, the DVD cut they've put a little bit back in, but the original cut was over three hours. And it's like watching the Ten Commandments or Lawrence <laughs> of Arabia because there's, they literally had the big title card, and in the middle they had the you know, intermission card when they would play seven minutes of music. I mean, it, it's a long film, and it feels like you're watching a Lawrence of Arabia or you're watching the Ten Commandments, or you're watching... It's a, it's a real epic kind of a film. And I think it's about five years too late. It, it, it's, it, it doesn't feel like a movie from 1960. It feels like a movie from the early to mid-50s, which is when he started working on it. And that was really the high point of those those epic movies, whereas Lawrence of Arabia feels a little more modern. Um, you know, this movie came in came the same year as Psycho, which, and, which was a very modern movie. And uh, it feels a little dated in that sense that it's... Yeah. I was going to say, it felt very, watching it for the first time, it felt very much to me like, okay, this is an old style type of movie. It's right. like a lot of it, even though it was, it was filmed on, you know, this wonderful set that they built, it still felt like, you know, a stage play is right. kind of how it was, yeah. it was done. Now you mentioned the VHS version, which is probably, which is definitely the first version that I saw and the VHS version was pan and scan. And I and when the DVD came out in the '90s, that was the, really the first time I ever saw in the full widescreen, which was the Todd AO uh, 70 millimeter or 65 millimeter widescreen format, and that's gorgeous. And and the shot compositions are absolutely beautiful for the film. And I, I and 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 the big battle sequences are amazing. So those are the strong points of the movie. Well, I think what's also is really interesting about the film is you look at the cast of characters and everybody who's in this movie. Uh, Yes, it feels dated. Yes, it feels like, but but again, they're all classic John Ford players. They're all repertory type of you know character actors. So it's no big stretch for you know for Chill Wills and and these guys to throw in a, a you know raccoon hat and then all of a sudden you know you're like totally believe like <laughs> yeah, I, yeah they they look like a bunch of crazy guys that rode out of Tennessee and came to you know yeah. came to give them Mexicans a what for you know you yeah. like and I think I think one of my favorite scenes is actually when. Uh, Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie meet on the street and they're beating up the the guys oh, yeah, in yeah. the street. <laughs> and just that whole moment. It's like, you know, you're kids and you read about Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie and you're like, all oh, these, you know, giants of history. And then it's like, oh, they're meeting and, you know, they're hitting guys on the head with their knife. And, you know, and Davy Crockett recognizes Jim Bowie because he's got his knife on his belt, you know. This was your grandpa's expendables. Wow. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and and... As far as the casting goes, I think the supporting cast is so much stronger than the main cast because John Wayne plays John Wayne. Um, I think Lawrence Harvey is great. People probably remember Lawrence Harvey from The Manchurian Candidate, which was a couple of years later. Uh, but I think he does a real, pretty good job, but he ratchets up the, the arrogance uh, of Crockett a little too much. And then Woodmark, I think, in, gets some things right, the aggressive n- nature of legendary Jim Bowie. Uh, but... At the same time, he's such a small guy, and he, yeah, he plays big, but Jim Bowie was a big mammoth of a man. <laughs> you know, it's funny, that never, I think, what's one of those impressionable things of childhood, though, is I saw this when I was young. You know, when I think of, of Jim Bowie, and when I think of Davy Crockett, and when I think of Travis, I go to these men's portrayal first, because it was like the first impression I had of them, outside of the books and the stories and the legends. And I think, you know, Widmark, um, his gritty nature stands out in contrast to everybody's performance. 
Now, there's a lot of, and what's really interesting is the internet has everything you could ever want on it. Yeah. And in fact, there's a huge forum dedicated just to this movie. There's also, there's also many things that you don't want on the we'll, internet. Well, that's true. We'll put a link in the show notes to this, but, but it's actually a really interesting resource. They have gathered lots of uh, behind-the-scenes photos, uh, making of photos, lots of stories, and some of the members of the forum have even gone out and gotten interviews with people after the fact. So if you're a fan of this movie, I do recommend... Um, you know, go to the show page and we'll put the link to the to the big John Wayne's The Alamo website. Yeah. You know, you talk about you going back to this as you're really the first source of material for, for your impression of The Alamo and that story. And I have this one, but at about the same time, I really was getting interested in Texas history. It was about 1986, which is the sesquicentennial. Sesquicentennial. Well, there was a TV movie that came out in 1986 called 13 Days to Glory, The Alamo. And it was based on Lon Tinkle's book, 13 Days to Glory, which it's, it purports to be a much more authentic and accurate portrayal of the Alamo. But that cast is amazing because it's got Brian Keith as Davy Crockett, although he's a little too old to play Davy Crockett. Big Jim Arness as, da- as Jim Bowie. And probably 20 years before, he would have been a great person to play Jim Bowie because he's a huge guy. He's a little too old for the part. But... Uh, Raul Julia plays Santa Ana, who really doesn't make an appearance in the Wayne Alamo movie. And Raul Julia is one of my favorite actors, and so he's amazing. But the best character in the movie is a very young and extremely handsome Alec Baldwin playing Travis. Um, <laughs> and he, he makes him much more sympathetic and much more human. Uh, but he's still, he, he's very much, I'm in the I'm a Handsome Man acting school Uh but I just that's and they used they were they filmed it at Alamo Village and it and it's it's not as big as John Wayne's The Alamo but I think it's more authentic in a lot of ways. And speaking of big and that's you mentioned earlier the you know the intermission with the score and everything and that would that jumped out to me right away when I fired it up the first time is that the music I really like the music oh, in this Dimitri movie. It's just and- it just really sets the tone for everything and it, it just carries you from scene to scene and regardless of what is actually happening I just kind of let that music carry and, me and it's an iconic score it's one of those iconic scores of the 1950s and 60s it was it's awarded and even today it's still you know lauded by lots of music critics and, and people, people point to it. it that that piece of the of the Alamo really does hold up so the other comparison is the 2004 Alamo which was by uh, Texas City's own John Lee Hancock uh, who I believe you're friends with his cousin or something, right, Scott? Um, yeah, his, I like went that. to school with one of his cousins. Cheap, cheap plug. Anyway, uh, that movie gets a lot of things right, but it also gets a lot of things wrong, and it doesn't quite, I don't think, have the epic feel that that John Wayne's The Alamo does. So, yeah, I haven't seen that one either. So maybe we can do an episode on that later. It's it's on YouTube, so you could just watch it on YouTube. <laughs> Next year for the anniversary of Alamo. We'll watch the 2004 yeah. Alamo. Okay. And then the year after that, we'll do 13 Days of the Glory. Oh, and right. if we're still yeah. on the air the year after that... <laughs> the Last Command. We'll watch The Last Command, <laughs> or we'll say we did, but actually watch John Wayne's The Alamo. <laughs> yeah, again. again. We'll have forgotten it. Um, but but the, the, the Hancock one doesn't have the speechifying that, that is so really one of the strongest parts of John Wayne's Alamo. The speeches are bold and over the top. And the thing that's interesting to me is one of the big criticisms of this movie is they go, you know, this is just right-wing propaganda, Republican <laughs> mouthpiece. This is yeah. John Wayne putting his, you know, anti-communist politics on the world. But 
I, you know, I don't know because, like, again, like when you watch it as a kid or even now, like there's something kind of well romantically sweet about seeing these big speeches about yeah, Republican well, freedom. Yeah, well, I mean, it captures that that independent spirit of Texas that we've talked about repeatedly. Right. It, it just kind of like, okay, here is this idealistic portrayal of the birth of Texas independence and. We want to believe that these giants of history, Davy Crockett, William Travis, Sam Houston, we want to believe that they would stand up and give these big speeches and say, this is the way the world should be. Texas should be free. People shouldn't be under the yoke of the oppressive Mexican government. And we want to believe that because that's the legend that we've been taught. I don't like, yeah, exactly. I don't like the idea of some stuffed shirt from some fancy pants tea-drinking New York City College <laughs> telling us about how Davy Crockett should and should not have made, you know, good speechifying speeches to the troops. Yes. Uh, but they're, they're, you know, they're, it's a romantic idealism. And I think you can even see from the quotes about Widmark is that, you know, it just really got under his skin and rubbed him the wrong way. And Widmark in later years became a very avid anti-violence, anti-gun proponent. Uh, yeah, pacifist. And, you know, you have almost a pacifist in that sort of sense. And he, he spoke out against a lot of that, and he said, you know, I'm in Westerns, and there's, it's portrayal of this, but you can feel, and maybe it's a delightful thing about this movie, is, is that the leads didn't get along, and there was a little bit of sand in his boot, and and for every, yeah. you know, and that that comes across in the screen, and it makes this great chemistry that kind of works on screen is he right. doesn't fit and he doesn't fit in and they're sort of rubbing against each other and they mm. get along but they don't get along and that sounds hot yeah <laughs> well <laughs> there's also some really great lines uh in the movie you know the the, the one we kept we kept going back to was what was it what kind of what kind of drink or god i don't even know the exact goes, line he goes uh chill will says well, what kind of drinking whiskey you Texans got? And the answer <laughs> well, was drinking whiskey. <laughs> well, let's be hospitable, son. Yeah. And then Something there's the like that. there's the line with uh, you know Nell, blind Nell and Jocko, you know, talking to Davy Crockett. You know, I voted for the other guy. Well, that's all. Right. That's all right. You know, lots. I'm glad lots of you got together and voted me out of that job. Yeah. Oh, and when uh, Jim, like I was saying, when uh, Jim Bowie and Davy Crockett meet on the street and they beat up the guys and say, oh, let's go back and have a drink or eight. And yeah. <laughs> uh, Jim Bowie says, all right, first round's on me, Congressman. And David yeah. Crockett's like, oh, no, I've been trying to live that down. Yeah, like, and yeah. The, the Sam Houston says, uh, if he's, you know, where's where's Bowie? And he's he's indisposed. indisposed. <laughs> if, he's, if he's drunk, <laughs> just say that he's drunk. <laughs> say he's, if he's, sir, if he's drunk, say he's drunk, sir. Yeah. And I, you know, and that's, I think that's the thing. I, and, you know, there's this one line I wrote down and I just, I was like, you know, it says, without freedom, why you're dead as a beaver hat. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's lots of this stuff and you, and, and I guess it's cloying and trite if you're, if you want to watch, you know, My Dinner with Andre or Nebraska or any of these kind of, you know, something in black and white and it's terribly depressing this is not the film for you. Right. If you're looking for John Casavetes, you know, a uh, woman under the influence or something, which is about the same time, then go watch that. Or if you want to watch Ingrid, Ingmar Bergman, The Seventh Seal, go watch that. This is a movie about Davy Crockett and Texas <laughs> and Jim Bowie mm-hmm. and and a fight between 180 guys and 10,000 <laughs> soldiers from Mexico coming down on them. And that's, that's, it's about the legend. And that's the great thing about this movie. It's not about necessarily about history. It's about the legend of the Alamo. 
And the thing that I think is probably the most interesting thing of all that really puts a button on this whole story of the Alamo for me is from a military perspective, the Alamo was not particularly a necessary fight. There really wasn't any reason for those men to stay and fight and die. But the, the resonance, the incredible resonance of that sacrifice, uh, it inspired the men that fought later, but it's also inspired people throughout history. I mean, remember the Alamo is something that carries beyond the borders of Texas. It carries beyond the borders of the United yeah. States. And yeah. in fact, you know... Uh, it's, entered the, it's entered the lexicon. It's entered yeah. the lexicon. In fact, famous you know, uh, ex-Genesis frontman Phil Collins is a renowned Alamo expert. He's written right. a book on the he's Alamo. He's, the he's, Alamo. He's, he's, a, he's nuts for the Alamo. And, and Phil, from us at Come and Take It, we salute you yes. <laughs> for embracing the Alamo, embracing Texas. Come back, come on the show anytime you like. We can talk about the Alamo or no jacket required. We can either, talk, one. either one. <laughs> either one. Uh, we can one. do Susudio, <laughs> Tabooie, and Travis. It's whatever you want to do. Yeah, whatever. But but it's 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 it became this iconic thing, And but there's no... It's just interesting. There's no military value to what for what the sacrifice was, but there's such an emotional value to it, and there's such a cultural piece that we hold on of saying, you know, they were, and and it comes to represent, I think, well, a lot of what Texas is. They were stubborn. They held their ground. They said the line must be drawn here and no further. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. That's that's what's great about it. One of them might have even said, "Today is a good day to die." That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstaple.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can follow us individually too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. And I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I am Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.